Turn, if you would, to the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew. We didn't quite make it through the 14th chapter last week. I was trying. For those of you who are uh, praying for my father-in-law, I appreciate if you continue to pray. If you don't remember, Thursday a week ago, his heart stopped for 10 minutes, and they zapped him and got it started again. Uh, this time last week, we weren't, gonna, we weren't sure he was going to survive. Well, he woke up on whatever it was, Monday or Tuesday, and he's very groggy, and he has a road ahead of him of therapy, but things are going much better than we expected, so keep praying for that. Last week, we worked our way uh, through the last part of chapter 14. If you remember, chapter 14 has a bunch of parables. Parables were stories that he gave to teach his disciples what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like. They kind of had a mixed uh, mission with the parables. One was to let his disciples know what the kingdom was going to be like. And part of it was to kind of obscure to the, those with hardened hearts so they wouldn't understand. And we read that passage and we go, eh, that's a little strange. Last week we ended with the verse that says the kingdom of heaven is like the fishermen who go out and they throw out their nets and they catch good fish and they catch bad fish. And when they come to shore, they sit on the shore and they separate the good from the bad. And he gives the explanation that at the end of the age, when Christ returns, there's going to be a separation. There's going to be a separation of those who have followed Christ and those who have not followed Christ. And so we didn't quite get to verse, uh, let's see, what verse is that? Uh, 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Now, I think that was a little optimistic on their part, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Here we have a discussion about what a teacher is supposed to be. So I, I, I struggle with this because I, I'm not sure I do this. But we'll work at it. He says the teacher goes to his treasure... He's like the master who has a wine cellar or something that he's got valuable things in, and ever so often he'll bring something new out to say, see, look what I have, and he brings something old out to say, see, I've had this for a long period of time. And a teacher is supposed to do that. And the way I understand that is that we have the old stuff. You know the scripture wasn't written yesterday, right? It was collected over thousands of years back when Moses is writing the Old Testament to the final book of the New Testament. And one of my jobs as a teacher is to take that which is old, which is the scripture, and teach it to you in such a way that it is new and it applies to your lives today. Because if I'm going to teach the scripture for a group of farmers, all these parables about farming go, oh, I know what that is. I don't think very many of you are farmers, okay? Some of you may have a garden and work in your garden, but you're not farmers. So I have to take that scripture, which is old, and make it new by illustrating how it applies to our lives today. 
And it is interesting to me, this is just a theory on my part, that at different times in history, one of these two gets emphasized more or less than the other. No, you have a period where let's read the the Bible and nothing else. And that's fine. The Bible's good. We should read that. But there's very little contemporary application. On the flip side of it, there are ages where everything has to be new. You know, the scripture was written a long time ago. It probably doesn't apply to us today. Let's change it. And we live in an age today where everyone wants to celebrate that which is new. You know, the old people, when the Bible was written, they didn't understand the modern world. So we have to, the teacher takes those two and merges them together. So Jesus, in presenting his parables, he's teaching them new truths that stand on the old truths that they are used to hearing. It's an interesting illustration that he gives. It's interesting because why does he give this to them here at the end of this long discussion of parables? Because he knows that when he's gone, they're going to have to teach the Word of God to the next generation of believers. They, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are going to take that which is new, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus by the time we get to the book of Acts, he, they're going to have to take that and go to this Jewish community and say, here's the old and here's the new. And guess what? That's what we do today when we share and spread the gospel. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. If you remember, we've talked about this before. This is actually pretty typical. You would have a synagogue. Remember, you had the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the sacrifices. The synagogues are not just small temples. There's no sacrificing going on. It's for teaching. It's for educating the people about what the law, the Old Testament to us, what it meant. And they would have rabbis, teachers that would come through town and they would sit in the synagogue, they would be brought a scroll, and they'd say, this is what it means. A visiting preacher. So, Jesus comes to his hometown, and he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astounded and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Remember, they had seen him when he was running around in diapers. Well, whatever the equivalent was. <laughs> is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at them, at him. They got ticked off. Now that's weird. Why would they do that? First off, let's back up just a moment. They heard his words and they were astounded. I kind of have this theory that when Jesus spoke, people listened. I've heard some really good preachers in my life. 
really good preachers, and you listen to them, and they have this nice baritone voice, and they talk to you, and, they t- and it's just wonderful. I just have this idea that when Jesus spoke, people kind of were astounded. And I believe that's because he is the Son of God. Okay, You get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it says the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority. So Jesus comes to his hometown, and he talks to them. And they're shocked. Where did this guy learn this stuff? We remember when he was running around the village. We remember that his dad was just a carpenter down the street. His dad is not some famous rabbi that he would have learned all this stuff at his feet. I don't remember him going to school anywhere. Where could he have possibly learned all this stuff? And on top of that, they had received word about all of his miracles. I mean, who is this guy? We know his dad. We know his brothers and sisters. What gives? He didn't have the credentials. He hadn't gone to the right college. He hadn't sat at the foot of the right rabbi and teachers. Where did he get it? Now, let's answer that question just to get it out of the way. Where did he get it? He's God. By the way, as I constantly remind us, we're not. I'm not. Everything that I teach, you need to be going to the Scripture and saying, is he right or is he wrong? Because guess what? I've been wrong before. And I'll be wrong again. Sometimes I want to be like Augustine. At the end of Augustine's life, he wrote a book where he went through all of his works and he pointed out everything that he'd gotten wrong. He did. It was his retractions. He says, okay, I said this and maybe I shouldn't have said that. Jesus didn't get anything wrong. Where did he get that from? He got it because he was God. He was God who had spoken the world into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came into this world, and that's Jesus. So, to answer their question, where did he get it? He got it because he was God. But they didn't know that part of it. All they knew was he was the snotty-nosed kid that ran around the neighborhood. We can have a speculation whether Jesus was ever a snotty-nosed kid, okay? Did he ever really get sick? They knew who he was. They knew his family. They heard what he was teaching, and they were offended by it. Why would they be offended by it? Who is this kid that we know his family? Who is this kid telling us what we ought to do? What is the basis of his authority to tell us what to do? And they recognized no authority on his part. They were astounded by his teaching, but they didn't want to listen to it. Now, you see this list of his brother's names, and if you remember, we had a discussion a couple of weeks ago 
about if you're a good Catholic, these are cousins, since they don't believe Mary actually had any children after Jesus, but we'll skip that for the time being. These are his half-brothers. They share a mother. Obviously, Jesus' father was God, okay? So, they list these names, and I might add, these names look a whole lot like some of the apostles. They're not, okay? Some of his siblings did follow him later. That's good. But at this point in time, these are his siblings, and they go, who is this guy? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Why is that true? Why is it that Jesus was not accepted in his hometown, but was accepted when he traveled around? You know the definition of an expert, right? someone that's more than 25 miles from his home. (laughs) Because you see, in my life, you know, my kids have seen me at my best, and they've seen me at the other, right? But Jesus never had the other. But to them, he was just a kid who had grown up who is now trying to tell us what to do. And they were offended by it. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now that's a very interesting phrase. Did he not do them because he couldn't do them? Or did he not do them because he chose not to do them. It is interesting, as you look at the life of Jesus and his miraculous activities, sometimes he will say, because of your faith, I'm going to do this for you. The centurion comes and says, my servant is sick. Jesus says, I'll go help. And the centurion says, no, I am a man who understands authority. All you have to do is speak. And Jesus says, wow, I have not seen such faith. Because of your faith, I'm going to do what you ask. Sometimes he says, because of your faith, I'm going to give you what you ask for. Sometimes there's no mention of faith. Sometimes he says, do you believe? And the person says, yes, I believe. Please help my unbelief, which to me is probably the most honest answer you can come up with, right? Yes, I believe, but help me because I don't believe all the time. So we know that Jesus honors people's faith by answering their desires, their prayers, But we also know that that is not a necessary precondition for Jesus doing miraculous deeds. It's not like there's a meter and he goes into a town and if that meter is high enough, he can do a miracle. And if it's not, well, he can't do it. He can do whatever he chooses to do. 
But what we see is when Jesus enters an area of unbelief, of hardened hearts, he says, this is me putting words into his head, so be careful. He says, why bother? Even if I did the miracles, they will not respond to them. I might as well not bother. We need to remind ourselves why he did miracles in the first place. You know, his job was not to heal everybody that was sick. His job was to present himself as the Son of God and die for our sins and be resurrected that we could have eternal life. But that people would understand his authority to do that, to validate his mission, to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, he came and he healed people so that they would respond to who he was. But he understanding the hearts of men and women, when he looks and says, there is no faith here, which is the indicator of a hardened heart, he says, why bother? Now, I do think it's interesting. It doesn't say he did no mighty works. He said he didn't do many, which is kind of interesting, right? Even with the hardened hearts, he still did some. He still had the ability, but he understood that there would be no response, so he just left. Because a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. So, that's the end of last week's lesson. <laughs> Chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, he, had, he commanded it to be given, but because of his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. I sat here and studied this passage thinking, okay, what is the modern application of this? Really? And what I decided jumped out at me is what we oftentimes refer to as the downward spiral of sin. Let's look at this. Herod the Tetrarch. Now, I've got to admit to you, I've always had difficulty with the word Tetrarch. 
because the word means one of four rulers. Okay? The Romans, at different points in their history, would have four rulers, and they were called tetrarchs. When Herod the Great died, he divided the kingdom between his three sons, each of which were a tetrarch. Now, I don't know about you, but I was a math major. There's three, and there's four to make a tetrarch, and there's only three. So what does that make them? 1.3 tetrarchs? I don't know. But the word tetrarch, which does mean one of four rulers, had actually, by this point in time, been used just to represent a minor ruler. And when I say that, it means that he doesn't have the absolute control that a king would have. A king can say, do this or you die. The tetrarch is under the Roman authority. In fact, Herod, this Herod's brother, had been the tetrarch of Judea, of the area of interest here, and Caesar began to worry about him, pulled him out of there, and sent him off to Gaul somewhere just to get him out of the picture. So, Herod is a tetrarch. He had inherited this when his father died, and he got a third, and now he's up to a little more than a third. Herod the tetrarch heard about Jesus. I mean, if you're a good ruler, you know what's going on. You get a report from your spies. The spies say, here's this guy out in the countryside, and he's healing people. And you go, if you're a good ruler, is he a threat to me? Do I need to go zap him? Do I need to crush him? Do I need to leave him alone? And that's the decision that needs to be made. But Herod has a guilty conscience because Herod knows that he had killed, he, Herod, had killed John the Baptist. That's at the beginning of the passage, and then he's going to explain the story. Let's remind ourselves of John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist, not John who wrote the book of John. He was the guy that was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. He began by preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember, Jesus came to him and said, baptize me. And John said, I can't baptize you. I mean, you have nothing to be baptized for. You have no sin to repent of. Now, it's interesting. John is a cousin, and he would have known. He would have known Jesus as a child. And he recognized, I believe, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who this guy was. But Jesus said, do it anyway, so that I can set an example for the people. So he is baptized. John continues to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And somewhere in there, something happens. John happens to comment that Herod cannot marry his current wife. Why? Because Herod's brother Philip has a wife. Herod has a wife. No, yeah, has a wife. But Herod wants Philip's wife. So Philip gets a divorce from his wife. Herod gets a divorce from his wife. 
And Herod marries Herodias, Philip's wife. And John the Baptist says, no way, Jose. That is an invalid marriage. You can't do that. Now let's stop right there for just a moment. Because this is an interesting thing. If John the Baptist had just continued to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, and not gotten involved in this political, moral stuff, Herod would have left him alone. But for some unknown reason, John felt compelled to tell Herod, you're wrong. And while Herod was a tetrarch and not a king, Herod had the attitude of a king, which was, you can't tell me what was right and wrong. We see this throughout the Old Testament when the prophets come along and they tell the king, you are wrong. That's the job of a prophet. And guess what? John the Baptist was a prophet. So, why did he do this? Let me give you the reason why. God told him to. That's the bad part of being a prophet. When God tells you to say something, you have to do it. That's the hard part about teaching the Bible. You know, I have this system. I start on verse 1 and I go, keep going. But I would love to skip verse 42 sometime. Or verse 18 sometime. Because I just don't like it. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this whole thing about the parables, and they were meant to confuse. I'm, I'm not real keen on I like that, but guess what? It's in the Bible. I've got to teach it because it's true, whether I like it or not. And John the Baptist, a prophet called by God, was told to confront Herod and say, you cannot be married to that woman. It is an invalid marriage. And Herod heard about this, and he was ticked off. Now, it's kind of a toss-up at this point. Who was really ticked off? If you read the passage in Mark, it makes it very clear that Herodias was really ticked off. And here it says that Herod was ticked off. That's a loose translation, by the way. Well, is there a contradiction between these? That's no. I mean... Let's face it, guys, if your wife is ticked off, you probably will be ticked off with her. But what we see here is the beginning of a downward spiral of sin. What did Herod want? He wanted Herodias. Why did he want Herodias? Because she was a hot-smoking babe. We begin with lust... We begin with lust and we move to removing the previous spouses so that you can marry the new spouse. Let me give you a hint where this story is going to end. This is very similar 
to what happened to David. You remember? David saw, he lusted, he acquired, and he got rid of the evidence. But you're going to see the difference at the end of the story. David repented. This is a downward spiral of sin. God, in his grace and mercy, will forgive us of our downward spiral of sin. Herod never repented. Go ahead. Definitely. Sin breeds sin. It is the product. We start with lust. We break up the marriages. We remarry when it was an invalid marriage. And then he has John the Baptist arrested because John the Baptist is telling the people. So while this may have been a moral issue, marriage, it became a political issue when it was the king, the Tetrarch, that was the object of his words. So, he brought John the Baptist to prison. And that's what we saw several chapters ago. What was it, chapter 11? He was in prison, and John the Baptist sent his, his disciples to Jesus and to ask him, are you really the one, or should we expect somebody else? And you remember Jesus' answer. He said, tell John, I healed the sick, I caused the blind to see, I raised the dead. Go back to the Old Testament. These were the criteria that demonstrated that he was the Messiah. So he told the disciples of John, this is the criteria, I'm doing all these things. We had a discussion at that time. Was John the Baptist having doubts and second thoughts? And that's why he sent the guys? That is a very possible answer. I tend to believe that John sent his disciples because John knew something was going to happen and he knew the disciples would need someplace to go, as we saw at the end of this passage. Two possible answers. I like the second one. Okay? So, John is in prison and he's just in prison. This passage says that Herod wants to kill him, but he's scared of doing it because he's worried about what the people will do. Downward spiral. Lust, breaking up the marriages, marrying someone you're not supposed to do, and then if he is king, he's a scared king. He's not doing what a king ought to do. Well, that started several steps ago, right? The Mark passage says that he likes actually going and talking to John. John was a raving lunatic, but he was kind of fun to listen to. Once again, another loose translation. So he would go talk to John just to hear him speak, as long as he's in prison and can't affect the people. And his wife, Herodias, was really ticked off and wanted to kill him. I believe all that's true. You know, there have actually been some authors that I don't like their stuff at all. But for some reason I keep reading them because it's just so far off that it's curious to me. How can you believe this stuff? And I see Herod going to John going, okay, give me some more of that. Really? You believe that? Yeah. So, John is in prison. 
Herod has a birthday party. And he has his birthday party and he invites his friends to his birthday. And it is quite possible, highly probable, that there was some heavy drinking involved. And at some point in the festivities, his stepdaughter, what was her name, by the way? We know that from Josephus. She came to dance before Herod and his buddies who had been drinking heavily. Now let's just stop here, okay? This is weird. She is probably 12 to 14 years old. If you look at, you know, timelines and start breaking it out. While it doesn't say the nature of the dance, the odds are very good that it is a very sensual dance. You see this spiral where you're going? He is now to the point where he is lusting after his adolescent stepdaughter. This would get you in trouble, right? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? We start with lust. We move to the breaking up the marriages. We marry a woman we're not supposed to marry. And then you start, I mean, it's a downward spiral. I actually thought about this in relationship to the book of Esther. You remember how the book of Esther starts? The king has this huge banquet and he wants his wife to come out so he can show her off. And Queen Vashti says, no way. I'm not going to go parade myself around in front of all your drunk friends. Now, she got in trouble for doing it, but she stood her ground. What in the world is the daughter, his stepdaughter, doing dancing sensually in front of him and all of his drunk friends? How does that make sense? But you know what? Herod got really excited about it. This is great. And she finished dancing, and he goes, Woohoo! And he says, Ask me for anything, and I'll give it to you. Ask me for as much as half of my kingdom, and I will give it to you. Downward spiral. Sin, sin, sin. And we have lots of discussion in the Bible about making oaths at the wrong time, and to the wrong person. What should she have asked for? Money? Power? Jewels? I don't know. You know? Stepfather, I want the biggest diamond you can find. And the father would have probably said, okay, I'll find one of those. It is interesting that he promised her half of his kingdom. Guess what? He's not a king. He has no kingdom. He is a governor. He is a tetrarch managing a piece of the kingdom for the government of Rome. He can't give away half his kingdom. But you know, you're drunk. You're with your drunk buddies. You just promise anything you can get away with. So, we're working our way down this spiral, right? If you're the young lady, what do you ask for? And she goes, I don't know. Let me go ask mom. 
So she goes and asks mom. And mom says, give me the head of John the Baptist. Think about this for a moment. Just in your mind. You have the opportunity at this point to get all the wealth, power, influence you could ever want. And what does she choose? Revenge. The downward spiral of sin. She has the ability to get anything. And what she wants more than anything is revenge against John the Baptist. You've heard the old joke, right? It's not a joke. The genie comes out and says to the man, I'll give you anything you ask for, but whatever I give you, I'm going to give twice as much to your enemy. And the man thinks for a moment, he says, cut off one of my hands. Think about that for a moment, right? Revenge had so consumed him, had so consumed Herodias, had that given the opportunity, the number one thing in her life was to get revenge on John the Baptist. So the girl goes to Herod, who's still in front of his, all of his drunk friends, and says, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, she's a pawn in all this. She really is. Bring me the head of John the Baptist. And it says, Herod didn't like the answer. Why didn't she want jewels? Why didn't she want nice clothes? Why didn't she? He knew, because he lived with Herodias. But at this point, he's stuck. He can't not keep his promise. So he tells the guards, okay, go bring the head of John the Baptist. They chop off his head, they bring him the platter, and they hand it to the girl, and the girl takes it to her mother. Lust, breaking up the marriage, invalid marriage, bad oaths, sensual dance, and murder. It's the downward spiral of sin. Now, I believe that in most of our lives, that downward spiral will never reach the point where we have somebody's head on a platter in front of us. Okay? But I also believe that in some of our lives, that downward spiral will bring us to the point where it sounds like a really good idea. It sounds like a really good idea that my enemy, that person who done me wrong, that their head is on a pole somewhere. And guess what? Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying that God looks at the condition of our heart? This is not some made-up story. It is a historical event 
but it illustrates what can and often does happen in all of our hearts where we become so obsessed with someone who did us wrong that we want their head on a platter, literally, figuratively, or some other way. And you go, I would never want to do that. Hmm. Back to the beginning of the story. Herod had heard about the things that Jesus was doing. And he was scared because he thought this was John the Baptist brought back. Now, this is a strange discussion of reincarnation. It's not really reincarnation because John and Jesus were only a few months apart. It's like he believed the spirit of John the Baptist had left John the Baptist and had entered Jesus and now he was coming for Herod. Because guess what? If you were Herod and you were ticked off at John the Baptist and John the Baptist was killed by you, you were going to believe that John the Baptist would really be ticked off at you. And now Her Jesus has the power of John the Baptist and he's coming for you. This is the way our minds think, right? We get all this stuff so messed up. We begin to think, if I hate you, you must hate me even more, which justifies me doing bad things to you. Go figure. Why do we do that? Because that's the downward spiral of sin. So he's thinking, this is the spirit of John the Baptist. I'm in trouble. And we're going to see that it finally gets dealt with, he thinks, later. But that's in the story to come. But back to the last uh, verse, verse 12. And his, John's, disciples came and took the body and buried it. Okay, the head is on a platter given to the mother. The body's sitting there. They go, can I have that body? Sure. And they do the burial that they should do. But what's the next phrase? And they went and told Jesus. Why in chapter 11 did John send his disciples to see Jesus? So that they would be prepared for just this moment. When this moment happened, they knew where to go. And they went to Jesus and they said, John's dead. Something happened, they beheaded him, it's all over. And Jesus says, okay. Now, at this point, we have to ask the big question. And I ask this question all the time, so you know what the question is, and you know what the answer is. Did John fail? Did he lose? The fact that he died would illustrate to Herod that John lost the battle. And guess what? In biblical terms, that means nothing. It really doesn't. John the Baptist did exactly what God wanted John the Baptist to do. He completed his mission. And God took him home. 
within the scripture, it's fascinating to me because you have all of these people who are rescued from horrible events. People want to kill them and it doesn't work because God protects them. And then you have these people who are stoned to death for doing what God tells them to do. What gives? Did God not have enough energy to save all of them? Biblically, it's irrelevant. Paul says, I don't know what would be best. If I died, great, I get to go home. If I don't die, great, I get to keep preaching the gospel. I think he would have greatly preferred dying. He really would have. Right. I told you I'm rereading uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And Christian and faithful show up in Vanity Fair. Now, the evangelist saw them before they were going into town, and he told them, one of you is not going to make it out of Vanity Fair. One of you is going to be killed. Guess what? They both wanted to be that one. Why? Because the journey's over. You won. John the Baptist did what God wanted John the Baptist to do. And that is the end of the story. Do you remember in one of the other Gospels we're told that some of John's disciples said, some of your buddies are leaving you to go after Jesus. Aren't you mad about that? And John said, no. He must increase and I must decrease. That takes a level of humility that is beyond a lot of us. I do appreciate the fact that John is sitting in prison and he's sitting there going, Okay, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't the mega church that I wanted to be the pastor of. This isn't the huge crusade that I wanted to lead in downtown Jerusalem. This is not exactly what I had in mind. Jeremiah sitting in his pit going, I was told that I was going to do God's work, and guess what? I'm sitting in the bottom of a pit. But you know what? They were all faithful to do what God told them to do. What is the principle of this? When we are faithful to do what God wants us to do, we need to allow God to worry about the consequences of that. God told John, tell Herod that his marriage is invalid. Tell Herod that he's walking down the wrong path. David was walking around on his rooftop. He saw Bathsheba bathing over there. And he said, get her for me. And he did. They brought her over. She became pregnant. Now he's got to hide his sin, right? He does that by bringing Bathsheba's wife back to town, hoping they'll have sex and the whole thing will look like, well, it's his child. But you know what? He's more righteous than any of them. So David goes to plan B. And he tells the general, put him at the front of the lines, make sure he gets killed. And he does. And then 
the prophet walks in and he tells this little story about sheep or something. And David's ticked off. He says, I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to kill the person who did this. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are that man. John the Baptist told Herod, you are that man. And what happened? Herod threw him in prison. David repented. We studied the life of David a while back. And remember, there's a whole psalm written about his repentance after Nathan the prophet confronted him. He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Please forgive me. There is a downward spiral of sin. What was the comment? Sin begets sin. We all know that's true. We've seen it in our lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. I sinned this way and I covered up with this sin and I covered up with that one. And at some point, the word of God comes to us and says, you're the guy on the downward spiral. And at that point, we repent like David. Are we turned to even greater sin, like Herod? That's the lesson that we learn from this passage. It's a tragic story. It's a tragic story for John's disciples, who their master was taken away from them. It's a tragic story for Herod, because it just demonstrated where his life was headed. But John the Baptist got his reward. And his reward wasn't getting his head chopped off. His reward was well done, good and faithful servant. So, I have no idea where you, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbor, your acquaintance, where they are on this spiral. But let me tell you this. As long as there's air in your lungs, you can repent. But if we harden our hearts and we say, no, just one more sin, just one more to cover up all the others, there is no such thing as just one more. You get to the point where you're doing the unimaginable and you're watching your 12 to 14-year-old stepdaughter dance sensually in front of you and your friends, and you would like to think you're going, what in the world am I doing? But you don't, because your heart is hardened. Repent. God will recognize, God will accept, as long as there's breath in your lungs, our repentance and give us grace. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God of grace, that even as we sin, you will forgive us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.